0: Welcome to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW, featuring conversations with experts on the issues that matter in economic and social development.
1: Welcome to Insight for Impact, the SQW podcast. I'm Joe Duggett, a director of SQW, and for the first podcast of 2024, we're going to be looking forward to consider what the next 12 months might hold for economic and social development. I'll be discussing with my colleagues, Lauren Roberts, Graham Tom, Osman Anwar and Christine Dole what to look out for in 2024 in health and social care, employment and skills, innovation and enterprise and local economic development. These discussions are naturally framed by the prospects of a likely general election, which we now think will be in the second half of the year. This is likely to influence the decisions and thinking of those involved in economic and social development in the coming months. However, there are also ongoing challenges, new issues and emerging opportunities across the economic and social development landscape, both nationally and locally, as we enter the new year, that are important and sit to some extent outside of this political cycle. So as we look into 2024, whilst the election is clearly important and we'll consider it fully in this podcast, the world isn't going to stand still. In that context, I'm delighted to be joined by Lauren Roberts, who leads much of our work in health and social care. Lauren, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Joe. Really pleased to be talking to you today.
1: Could we start, Lauren, by briefly reflecting on your comments from when we spoke 12 months ago in January 2023 on our equivalent look-ahead discussion last year? How did the year then play out in practice in relation to what you saw as the key issues at that point?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if we think back to the podcast that we recorded 12 months ago, a lot of our conversation focused on the importance of workforce issues in health and social care, and also the expected publication of the long-awaited NHS long-term workforce plan. So if we fast forward to now, 12 months later, the plan was released in June, so there is now an outline of the workforce issues, at least in healthcare in England, and, and how those issues might be addressed. But the main issue, I think, that, that still hangs over all things to do with health and social care remains the workforce one. And workforce in the NHS and social care is an area that we in SQW have conducted a fair amount of studies in. So when you think about the, the long term workforce plan, obviously it's been launched, but it, it obviously hasn't solved everything yet and certainly won't do so in the short term. That we're talking about workforce is probably not a massive surprise to to you or indeed our listeners um but it really does remain a key factor underpinning you know the ongoing waiting time and access issues and really affecting patient service user and staff experience and when i'm talking today i'll be talking about england specific figures and examples but the experience in england is by no means unique and this will be seen across the uk
1: Lauren. When you talk about workforce issues in the NHS, can you give us some sense of the scale of the challenge that needs to be addressed? And what does that mean in practice?
0: So the, the plan itself notes locally reported vacancies of 112,000 in healthcare in England alone. And, you know, we've, we've got an ageing population. So if the shortfall isn't addressed, then the forecasts, including those in the plan, suggests that we might end up with a shortage of, of up to 360,000 staff in healthcare care in 12 to 13 years time. And that doesn't cover the shortage of staff in social care, too. And we know that's been a sector that's struggled to recruit and retain staff. So when you look at a recent publication by Skills for Care, they reported a couple of months ago that there were over 150,000 vacancies in social care in 2022 to 23. So we're really talking about huge numbers here. And that's about 10% of social care posts that, that weren't filled. And that proportion of vacancies was actually a reduction compared with what was seen in the previous year.
1: So clearly staff shortages is a major issue that will continue to impact on health and social care in 2024. Are there other issues we should be looking out for in this area?
0: Well, obviously, there have been further strikes throughout 2023 with industrial action at various different points by nurses, ambulance staff, junior doctors, consultants, and obviously the industrial action by junior doctors is due to continue into the new year. So now this is, again, something we reflected on 12 months ago when we recorded the last podcast, Looking Forward, and whilst not all of those groups are still involved in industrial action currently there remain some underlying tensions regarding pay and conditions. And I think there's a real risk there that we might return to that wider strike action in 2024. And then when we think about NHS England's own operational statistics that were released in December, they showed that since the strikes began, over a million acute inpatient and outpatient appointments have been rescheduled. So we're really talking about widespread workforce issues which persist And they obviously affect patient and service user experience and care access as well as staff morale and that point on staff morale feels like a really important one and an interesting one for us to touch on so CQC released their latest state of care publication and that presents details of a health and social care workforce in England which is overworked, stressed, exhausted, I think they were the phrases that CQC used And itself is sometimes becoming ill as a result and potentially leading to more staff absence, and there's a risk there around that continuous cycle of illness, absence, stress, etc.
1: Thanks, Doran. Clearly, quite a challenging and sobering set of issues for the health and social care sector in England. And as you said, it's a similar overall picture across the rest of the UK. In the spirit of trying to keep hold of the optimism and excitement that comes with New Year celebrations, are there any? Particular more encouraging or positive developments that you think will be important for 2024? In 2024,
0: there will be over 200 more medical training places in universities. So there are some steps being taken to increase the homegrown talent pipeline of medics. There's also a shift in terms of the types of roles being used. So there's increasing use of position associate roles in the NHS workforce. And these are not new, they were introduced a few years ago to support doctors in diagnosing patients and managing care, albeit not without some some concerns being raised recently about patient awareness and understanding regarding their role. And there have also been the introduction of new services to try to better meet people's needs, either at an earlier stage or via alternative provision. So for example, there's now a specialist perinatal mental health service in all parts of England that was announced recently by NHS England and last year those services treated over 50,000 patients.
1: I mentioned in the introduction to the podcast the likely general election in 2024 and health and more recently social care are always high profile issues at general elections. At this point conscious that we've yet to see manifestos and there's a lot of water to, to pass under the bridge before polling day What can we say about the potential implications for health and social care?
0: So Labour have said that they don't plan to fundamentally restructure the NHS, but they have placed emphasis on community care and providing care closer to home. And they've talked about allocating over a billion pound for overtime payments for staff to really try and tackle those waiting lists that I've been talking about. Um, So paying, for example, for more operations, appointments or scans with working evenings and weekends, so the staff can work through that waiting list. And they've also pledged some funding for equipment and, for example, the use of AI scanners to try and speed up diagnosis. So we're likely to see I think, further emphasis on health and social care and staffing issues or workforce issues over the coming year. And ongoing challenges and issues will remain that will take some resolving.
1: We've heard from Lauren about the challenges, but also some of the more encouraging developments in health and social care, with a particular emphasis on workforce issues. That leads us nicely into considering employment and skills across the economy more broadly. To discuss this, I'm now joined by Graham Tom, an expert in this area. Graham, welcome back to Insight for Impact. Can you give us a sense of the overall landscape in relation to employment and skills as we head into 2024?
2: Yeah, sure. Nice to be back, Joe, um, a year on, see how things have changed or the case or not. I guess there's a bit of nervousness about the labour market. So there's been various data in the last few weeks about declining job vacancies, um, and they're still pretty high historically, but they're down. They've been sort of flat and declining through the year, and they continue to decline. And I guess if you go and look at the forecasts that various people produce into next year, They look fairly pessimistic for the economy and therefore for the labour market. That said, we've done better this year than people thought we would do. So I should be not too pessimistic just in case, but um, there's more downside than upside, I think.
1: Are the challenges Lauren discussed in relation to workforce gaps in health and social care evident across the wider labour market?
2: The general message about lack of supply probably is it's very very high profile in health and social care but is generally an issue still for employers. Um, Partly a mix of the number of people and the skills of the people that they can get and putting those two together seems to continue to be a real challenge for the UK. In that context you've seen government continue to respond um, including through the autumn statement and one of the Sort of interesting part, so that 's this ongoing issue, which we did talk about I think last year Joe about people who are economically inactive and again, this is a quite a lot of high profile but um it, if anything, it appears to be getting worse and not better so the numbers of economically inactive are probably about the same as they were when we spoke last year, but continuing the trends for the last few years. The number of people who are economically inactive and say they would like to work continues to fall. So that stock of people who potentially should be in employment and would like to be in employment are not. And a big part of the government's agenda is how do we get those people back into work? The shift in the economically inactive population, interestingly, appears to be people who previously thought they had family childcare responsibilities, Um, Moving into issues around health, so if you look back to Lauren and you can't fix the waiting lists in health, lots of these people can't work either because they are sick or they have members they need to look after are sick. And if you can't put those two together, health impacts on employment. Where we're seeing that in a lot of our work at the moment, which I think is genuinely interesting and brings up lots of issues, is how far the employment support system can help people address their health barriers. And if you can remove health barriers that way, so in effect, you are on one level, prioritising people with health issues to get them back into work over others, which is quite interesting in the context of NHS. But in delivery terms, is really interesting but how do you integrate services, how do you make employment and health work better together? And that's coming through. So I think that's a big agenda that will continue through next year and beyond. That's really interesting, Graham.
1: You've mentioned health-related employment barriers and support. What about skills and how that may influence labour market prospects and conditions? Um, and this year, the employer skills survey reported again, which is
2: always a bit of a holy grail of robust data that we can use as practitioners to look at what's happening. And it was pretty depressing. It showed fewer employers training their employees. It showed employer spending less. It showed fewer, relatively fewer employees being trained. So you've got a kind of a pretty bad situation of employers saying they can't recruit and they can't get the right skills and at the same time employers not investing in their own workforce and that strikes me as like the worst of all worlds to be in so we've got a real challenge as practitioners to break
1: out of that cycle. What do you think might be driving that Graham and influencing business decision making and actions?
2: It's really interesting I, I, I think there's probably a series of things behind it and Some of it's the classic about the supply of training. What's available? Are businesses investing enough? Probably not. That's a fairly general comment across the economy anyway. So a lot of the discussion is about artificial intelligence and its threat to jobs. And there's some quite good analysis being done in different places. about Some jobs being more exposed, some jobs changing, some jobs not changing. But at some point, I've said this now for a couple of years, and at some point I might be right, but I might not. If employers can't recruit people and skills that they want, there is an investment option, which is capital, machinery, technology for some jobs. And I think that's not happened at the scale I thought it would have happened at. But at some point, AI might help that tip over. So there's a bit of changing jobs and there's probably a bit of actually changing work processes to better adapt to the skills available in the economy.
1: Thanks. In light of the issues you've raised about the labour market and economy overall, what are the policy agendas that you think will be important over the next year, including how the general election might play into this?
2: There's probably three things I would flag which I think are worth watching. Um, In part, UK governments create quite an interesting situation. So as part of the autumn statement, they announced a series of measures which run to 2025 and beyond. So they've actually announced a set of things to run through the next election, if you want, which is quite clever and quite good in terms of back-to-work policy. And quite a bit of the thrust of those is trialling test-and-learn approaches of things that might happen thereafter, placing ground for people going into work. So you can begin to see an emerging agenda. And actually, in various cases where we're working, being delivered by combined authorities. So if you take the devolution agenda, Labour saying it wants to devolve, a broad approach to getting people into work, you begin to see that policy agenda shaping itself up. Number two, um, possible contrast conflict. A lot of the announcement around that back to work was actually about being tougher on people who are out of work. At the same time, there's a whole body of evidence and a series I think timepieces about having a more people-centric employment service to encourage people back to work rather than forcing them back to work. And that kind of, I think, will play out in the margins of an election. You can see different campaigns around that. And beyond that, into the sort of good work agenda, not just getting people into work, but actually what does good work look like? And that's got more and more important. I guess the final thing I would say on that is the other thing the Labour Party's announced, and this gets gets quite a lot of publicity from different organisations already, is the apprenticeship levy. And there's a lot of noise around the apprenticeship levy and it's almost a tax on employers because lots of them don't spend it. And Labour's got a broad commitment that says you'll get more flexibility in how you spend the levy. If you come back to our employers not spending, would that be a nudge to some to nudge them up? Possibly. But it's quite interesting they're couching it in those terms of not getting rid of the levy, but increasing the flexibilities around it.
1: Thanks for listening to SQW's Look Ahead to 2024 in Economic and Social Development. We've heard from Lauren Roberts and Graham Tom about health and social care and employment and skills. And I'd now like to welcome Osman Anwar, who's an expert in innovation, finance, and enterprise. Osman, welcome back to Insight for Impact.
3: Delighted to be back on, Joe.
1: Osman, you've heard Graham talk about the concerns on the enlightenment of employer needs and workforce skills and also apparent reduced levels of investment in training by businesses. You're particularly interested in the role of business innovation and enterprise more broadly. 2023 was a challenging year in this area, given overall economic conditions. Can you say a bit about this for context and what that means for the prospects over the next 12 months?
3: We have seen company insolvencies go up the highest level since 2009. Uh, there were a combination of factors contributing to this rise, so higher interest rates obviously resulting in higher cost of debt servicing, high energy bills and the folding of zombie companies that had survived the covid era area, government support. The concern is now that the insolvency trend will go into 2024. Um, most forecasts expect weak GDP growth for the UK in 2024 and business investment is expected to fall between 1% and 4%. will undoubtedly have implications for the UK's productivity growth. Now the other thing I'd like to raise is you know the UK does very well in innovation ranking but it does need to improve on its business investment in R&D. The UK is actually quite average in providing incentives for R&D relative to other R&D intensive economies. Now we do hope to see some positive policy developments this year, um, in relation to this, and in other areas for innovation and business. So, if you take a look at the recent government announcements, for example, in the autumn statement, those hopefully will come into play this year. These include the following: one, R&D tax relief for businesses to stimulate in investment and innovation; two, unlocking long-term patient capital so from pension funds to finance growth; three. Measures in response to the independent review of the university spin-out companies. Fourth, as of January, uh, the UK becomes an associate country to Horizon Europe. Um, you know, So our reachers will be able to participate in the EU's research and innovation programme and have access to Horizon Europe funding. And the fifth area is the rapid evolution of artificial intelligence tools, which will continue into 2024. Now, cutting across all of these, UKRI and Innovate UK uh, will continue to deliver on their commitments as uh, set out in their corporate and action plans. And I'm just being very selective here. And a you know, key initiative in that will be investment in technology missions, as they've called them. Uh, and that's in AI, quantum and engineering biology to tackle global challenges like net zero, healthy ageing uh, and energy
1: security. Thanks, Osman. There's quite a lot to think about there. If we can touch on a couple of those points maybe in a bit more detail. Firstly, R&D tax relief, and secondly, increasing patient capital through unlocking investment from investment funds. Could you say a bit more about those two points and why you think they're important as we look ahead to
3: 2024? Sure. On R&D tax relief, so the key initiative here is the merger of the Research and Development Expenditure Credit and the SME schemes. So the merging of these schemes will help to simplify the process of claiming tax relief importantly the threshold for firms to be considered R&D intensive will also be reduced from 40% to 30% of total expenditure now this adjustment will allow you know more SMEs to qualify support I think it comes an extra 5,000 firms that will be eligible as a result uh, there're also changes to contracting out r&d so that businesses that initiate and take on the risk of an r&d project can claim relief for contracted tasks now this ensures that the primary innovator can access tax relief whether performing all r&d activities or outsourcing some of it the second area on unlocking investment and in growth through pension funds this area has been offering investment opportunity for pension funds to enable more money to go into UK science and technology sectors. Now the importance of long-term patient capital is something we have seen in our uh, evaluation of you know uh, programs like British patient capital and in our review of the equity ecosystem in Ireland. There is also general cross-party consensus on this you know attracting pension funds to the VC asset class for scaling up. Innovative high-growth businesses. So you know, through the Bus- British Business Bank, government is now committed uh, two hundred fifty million to the long-term investment for technologies and science uh, called Lifts. So this will create two new investment vehicles that will enable access to pension fund capital, unlocking you know over a billion pounds of private capital. They're also setting up a new growth fund within the British Business Bank, again to give pension schemes access to the uh, bank's pipeline of opportunities. So crowding in for the private capital. Now, this all, all builds upon the British Venture Capital Association's lead uh, with the support of the government with the mansion house reforms and the later the compact that was announced to get more um, institutional investment into high growth innovative businesses. Uh, In the UK. The hope is to unlock a further 50 billion by 2030, I think it was. Um, Whilst we're on talking about British Business Bank, I think there's just two very quick points to highlight. We're pleased to see the continuation of British Patient Capital to 2033 uh, and a further investment of 3 billion in this. Uh, There's also the future fund breakthrough. And then from a regional perspective, you know, the nations and regionals investment funds. Now, these are supply side initiatives. They're welcome to make the UK more competitive internationally. However, in developing um, what I can describe as a patient and more inclusive finance ecosystem it's really going to be important to evidence financial returns and economic development outcomes. So things like jobs, business turnover, knowledge intellectual property and um, what some refer to as the double bottom line and then a second I think important point here is about ensuring that the investment goes to diverse entrepreneurs so you know women or from an ethnic minority group or other diverse background and on that listeners can check out our uh, other SQW podcasts on improving diversity and venture
1: capital. Yes, that episode of Insight for Impact with Osman and our colleague Imogen Sprackling from November last year can be found at the SQW website and relevant podcast platforms. You mentioned artificial intelligence, Osman, which interestingly is something that both Lauren and Graham also referenced. Now, this is the million dollar question, I guess, but what do you think we should be thinking about in relation to AI and its potential for influencing business behaviours and investments, and innovation and economic growth more widely as we look into 2024? And what might the implications be of this?
3: Yeah, that is a a
1: tricky one, that one.
3: I mean, certainly, as we've all seen, the development of AI has really accelerated with the release of new generative AI such as Chat, GPT, BARD, Gemini, QSTAR under development. And we'll see more AI tools coming out in 2024. Now, the the big change, I think, will come from you know, AI tools, we, as we know, can produce false information. Now, the technical term for this is hallucinate. Now, that was the Cambridge Dictionary Word of the Year for 2023. Um, so that is tools that can provide quite convincing information, but it's not quite accurate. So we'll see, I think, the shift from those kind of tools uh, to more which are based on logic and math. Uh, So they're able to problem solve and be more accurate, decide what's true or not. Um, So we're getting into that territory of Alan Turing's original questions, you know, can machines think? So when this happens, you know, AI will do more tasks, uh, even better, uh, more accurately, take even less time, resulting in significant productivity gains. Now, so what are the implications of all of this in certainly in innovation and business development but for the economy as a whole? Um, there are certainly trade-offs between quality uh, and speed but as the tech develops, will this trade-off still exist? Is a the question. There's certainly a piece around the adoption and diffusion of AI. Um, you know, these tools coming out is fine but actually... Uh, the skills that are needed um, uh, and how best to use them more widely—you know—the ad- adoption and diffusion piece will be important for for mass take up. Um, but I do feel that government policy is always kind of playing catch up, given the rate of tech development. Now, the current government uh, has a kind of a pro-innovation approach to AI regulation. It's pretty light-touch framework, uh, and the Safety Institute, the AI Safety Institute. Uh, with an initial investment of £100 million, it, it is coming on, is going to be set up as well. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but we all, always kind of feel it's kind of responding to the tech companies, you know, rather than being at the forefront. And then I think it would be wrong as, you know, not to say something around how do we actually measure the economy given the potential impact of AI on jobs and productivity, etc., and uh, evaluators and policy makers will just need to be a bit more uh, sophisticated in our thinking on how best to measure the economy. Is jobs, for example, employment um, going to be uh, the key measure as it has been historically? More broadly, the question is who wins and who loses from all of this? Is it the tech companies, the financiers of AI, the users? Uh, I mean, that's a much wider, more philosophical question which will be grappling with in the future.
1: Thanks, Osman. Overall, looking across the various different areas you've covered, where does that take us to in terms of the prospects for innovation and enterprise over the next 12 months?
3: If you take the floor chart for growth at the most basic level would be something like as follows, R&D inputs to innovation, which results in productivity, in turn leading to economic growth. Now in this logic, investment both public and private, and business support, and the resilience of businesses to external shocks will, I think, be even more critical in 2024. In the future, perhaps an involved AI could provide the solution,
1: as long as it's not hallucinating, of course.
3: (laughs) Yes, I think for now we'll
1: stick to real people and human intelligence in our look-aheads, for example, although I guess it might not be too long before I'm replaced as a host by AI. Thanks, Osman. Thanks, Joe. For our final segment in Looking Ahead to 2024, I'm joined by Christine Dole, who is an expert in local economic development and innovation at a local level. Christine, how would you summarise the overall context as we head into 2024 in this space?
4: Thanks, Joe. Well, I think as we look forward into the next year, in lots of ways, the The broader context um, for local uh, economic growth processes is is actually quite challenging, I think. Um, You'll have seen that the Bank of England, amongst others, have produced recent forecasts in terms of national uh, GDP growth, which are really quite gloomy, um, and the expectation of rates of growth uh, that are well below historic averages into the medium term. Now, that is obviously quite challenging in itself um, once you start to translate that down to a local level and I think where it will bite is in terms of businesses and the decisions they make um, their ability to borrow money to invest and so on and I think the the survey evidence certainly suggests that many are increasingly cautious about this which for lots of reasons I think it is a concern um, locally where it will also bite at a local level I suspect is in terms of development processes that are underway um, big schemes that are being constructed and so on partly as a result of inflation because of cost pressures but also this issue around interest rates which um, I think if you look at interest rates historically they're not that high at the moment if you go back 20 years they're, they're kind of normal but certainly compared to what we've seen over the last 10 they're looking really different and I think it's it's a set of circumstances that local areas haven't had to think very hard about really until until now. And uh, it will be quite challenging in terms of economic growth as we look into 2024 and beyond.
1: That provides us with a really good overview of the economic and operating context for local areas. Where does that take us then in terms of policy? And again, recognising that the general election is on the horizon for the second half of the year as we record the discussion, but not yet confirmed. Mm.
4: As it stands at the moment it 's quite hard to know the two main political parties in lots of ways, are saying quite similar things. I think um, what you don 't know is is the sort of momentum that 's placed behind them or the relative balance between them. But issues around productivity are really important nationally. Um, I think there 's no dispute about that. Our productivity is poor as a nation, and that has local uh, consequences and needs local responses. Uh, clusters and other place-based approaches are likely to feature, I think. Um, and I think that's good because actually it is understanding how assets work in places is, is going to be key to, to growing the economy as we look forward. Um, housing is a major issue, politically fraught, obviously, but um, locally critical and takes different forms in different places. But um, it's something that every local area is going to need to think about. Towns will feature, and perhaps that's one area where 2023 did see something a little bit different happening um, with the publication in October of the long-term plan for towns, um, the clue being in the title and the emphasis very much on a at least a sort of 10-year horizon um, rather than lots of one-year funding streams, which is really challenging when you're trying to do something um, quite major at a local level. And actually that document that was published um, included provision for locally led urban development corporations which I think is a really interesting development potentially quite where it gets to I don't know but uh, in terms of the possibilities it was creating I think that's quite interesting and then the other big area that is going to feature whatever the next government looks like I'm sure is devolution We've seen some progress in that over the last year, particularly in relation to level four devolution, which is the kind of
1: you know,
4: the top end of the process, I suppose, in terms of local area um, possibilities and some really quite radical potential possibilities coming out of that. I think the risk of it, though, is that we're left with a complete patchwork quilt of arrangements across um, certainly across England. And for people who are not sort of in this world day and night, if you like, in terms of public policy, it's going to be really confusing as to who does what and how things happen. Um, But that's the environment I think that we're heading towards and one that we're going to have to navigate and negotiate as we look forward.
1: You make the point about the complexity and changing nature of the institutional landscape and different tiers of organisations with responsibilities for local economic growth. An example of that in England is the transition from local enterprise partnerships with functions part of local authorities or combined authorities where relevant. Can you say a bit more about this and the capacity for local economic growth going forward?
4: Yes, well, interestingly, government has just literally a week or two ago published some new guidance on this. Um, And one of the things it's emphasised actually is the ongoing importance of local economic strategy Um, the responsibility for that will shift to the upper tier authorities or MCAs where they're in place. But the fact of having an economic strategy is there to stay by the looks of it. And I think that's because of this overarching concern about growth nationwide and the fact that local areas really do matter in relation to it. Um, The guidance is quite high level and I don't know what's there that hasn't been published, if you like. But just reading it through, I think what's important, actually, is some of what it doesn't say. So what's published says nothing at all, actually, about um, the responsibilities of local areas in relation to net zero or climate change or how that links to an economic growth journey. And there's a clear and important relationship that needs uh, thinking through at a local level bearing in mind that many local areas have committed to net zero carbon 10 years ahead of the national um, commitment, which is now not very far into the future and, and you know really serious, I think, in terms of local responses. The guidance also doesn't mention things like artificial intelligence and technology more generally. And yet, I think over the next decade, that's going to be transformational, really, in terms of what employment looks like at a local level and what the possibilities might be automation is both an opportunity and a threat but it's going to shape local economies in a big way and uh, local strategy needs to anticipate that and respond to it the third thing it really doesn't mention is links to housing um, which as I said earlier is contentious and complicated and you know difficult to navigate but it's so integral to how local economies Uh, perform and function and what their prospects are, um, that it really does need to be thought through uh, in that context. I think the other two points I would make about it are these local economic strategies are going to have to be good ones, I think, to shape what happens and to to start to influence the, the narrative around place. Uh, But they're coinciding with local government situation, which is really serious um, in many areas, I think, in terms of local government finance and the pressures on budgets and so on. So it's a big job to take on at a time when resources and capacity are really stretched. Um, And I think you know that will be a challenge over the next year and probably beyond uh, and one that we're going to have to work with and think about quite hard.
1: That point about the wider local government landscape is really important. It makes me think about a survey that was released in December, I think, that said around half of council leaders, chief executives, were not confident that they will have enough funding to fulfill their legal duties in 2024, including statutory services. This obviously raises concerns directly in relation to those services and also then implications for more discretionary regeneration economic development funding which will also influence directly economic growth thanks christine looking across the full range of topics we've covered it clearly is a challenging landscape as we look forward into 2024 in economic and social development but there are also opportunities and some shared themes these include the potential of new technologies in shaping investments and improving productivity both in the private and public sector. And despite the backdrop of an upcoming general election, actually some areas of broad political consensus, including related to the devolution of decision-making, the importance of long-term investment in R&D and innovation, and actually the continuity of provision in key public services, and a recognition in principle, at least, of the importance for planning for the longer term both at local and national levels. Thanks again to my guests looking ahead to 2024. And thank you for listening to Insight for Impact.
0: You've been listening to Insight for Impact, the podcast from SQW. To learn more about SQW, our people and our latest thinking, please visit our website at sqw.co.uk. And if you have any further feedback or thoughts on the podcast or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, please get in touch with us via LinkedIn and Twitter using the handle at SQW.